Welcome to the Pathfinders Collective podcast, where we work with change makers in finance, NGOs, and businesses large and small to stare down the truth of the climate and ecological crises and develop the courage to create bold new visions for the future. Visions and strategies so bold and beautiful, you'll be ready to weather the coming storms to get there. If you'd like to find out more about how to get started, please head on over to www.thepathfinders.co. Follow us on Instagram at thepathfinders.co. Subscribe to our Substack and YouTube channel. And of course, keep listening to the podcast. In this episode, I met with Ben Jack, director of Common Seas, an organization on a mission to tackle plastic pollution. This is another area where the reality of the situation is often underreported. So I wanted to find out more about where we really are in order to better engage with possible solutions. Ben is a font of knowledge on the whole plastic pipeline from production to waste and everything in between. Common Seas do amazing work in policy development, education, and also work with researchers to explore the impact of plastics on our health. Ben himself was one of the first people in the world to have his blood tested for the presence of plastic, and what he learned is incredibly eye-opening. I was shocked at the scale of the challenge and the audacity, yet again, of the oil and gas industry, but also emboldened by the work of Common Seas and the policies they're helping to make happen in the world. So, if you're ready, let's listen to Ben and explore the real problem of plastic and learn what the best solutions for a different kind of world look like. How big of a problem is plastic pollution? Can you give us some kind of examples or stories for scale? Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's a really big problem, in summary. <laughs> I think it's interesting. It's a problem that it feels like there's been such a crescendo of interest and engagement across society, you know, the whole Blue Planet effect, across government businesses and sort of consumers of plastics. But I speak to a lot of people and there's a sense like, it's a problem we're, we're solving or it's, it's kind of happening. You know, we've, we've seen the bag, the bag taxes coming in. Like, actually, this is one that we don't have to worry about anymore. Um, and um, so I'm going to be the usual kind of guy who comes on talking about the environment and give you some doom and gloom scenarios. But also it's important to recognize that we have we do have a lot of solutions at hand and there's a lot of rising and building momentum about this is a, tackle, this is a problem we can tackle within our lifetimes. Um I mean, in that sense, it's interesting that this is like a, a problem that's actually happened within one generation as well. Like when you look back a century ago, plastic didn't even really exist. Um, and, it, you know, in I think it was in like 1950, we were producing about 2 million tonnes of the stuff. But then fast forward today, and that has spawned this multi-billion dollar global industry that's now producing 280 million tonnes of plastic every year. So is skyrocketed into our life and you know the applications are obviously many and various and extremely useful adaptable material which is kind of the reason why it was so good and the reason why it's such a problem but the challenge is that you know despite all of this interest and understanding now of the impacts of plastic pollution both in terms of environment society health economy um, all kinds of other elements of our of our world, we're still on track to invest a hell of a lot more money into making more of the stuff. So um, at the moment, over the next and a couple of decades, plastic production is on track to, to double. Um, and like just to give you a sense of like what that means, that's a projected 2.3 trillion US dollars being invested into making more of the stuff, right? Um, and, and if we do that, 
what that means is that if I was talking to you in 2040, by that point, there'd be four times the amount of plastic in our oceans today as, uh, as there is today, which is just astonishing because, you know, we've all seen those harrowing pictures of, of beaches and rivers and landscapes being consumed by waste. And to kind of think about that stock in our ocean of um, quadrupling in 20 years is pretty, is pretty remarkable. So I suppose, yeah, the, the, the problem is big in terms of we've got a material that we're still planning on using lots more of. And at the moment, although we have a lot of the solutions that we need to solve the problem, the current kind of commitments that are on the table from governments and from businesses are really barely scratching the surface, I would say. Um, there was an analysis, analysis done that we were kind of um, sort of part of or supporting um, a year or so ago now. And at that point, if you, if you summed up all of the government and business commitments um, around plastic pollution mitigation, it would get you a total of 7% of a reduction of the projected amount of ocean-bound plastic by 2040. So all of the commitments that we had at that point in the world get a 7% less plastic in the ocean by 2040. So, you know, what that says is, We've got a big problem, it's going to get bigger, and what's on the table at the moment is not really addressing it in any kind of ambitious, serious so that's way. 7% reduction in the projection from now, so not 7% compared to now, but based on that investment, you're saying that the, the growth in plastics, if we take on board the present um, reductions, we get 7% less of that huge number that you just said earlier. Yeah, so th this was a this was a study that was essentially the it was the largest single modelling exercise of plastic material flows mm. in the world, and um, it was conducted by Pew Trust and Systemic and Common Seas were a, a thought partner alongside Oxford University, Leeds University, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, and so what it looked at is okay, what's the baseline of of plastics in terms of waste generation and, and, and what's entering the ocean and other different parts of the kind of plastic ecosystem in terms of the managed component as well. What happens if we um, look forward 20 years and we project um, increasing demand, increasing population, changing uses of plastic, how we think um, solid waste management systems are going to evolve, what happens then? And then what you do is you kind of o overlaid the different commitments from government. So, Mm -hmm. policies around banning new materials, for example, investing in recy recycling infrastructure, switching into upstream innovation around reuse refill. So you took all of those sort of solid commitments that have been announced and you um, then modelled their potential or likely effect on those material flows. And what the analysis said is that based on what's on the table at the moment, based on the kind of hard, hard commitments and plans they're on the table from governments and businesses. When you look at 2040, you put all those plans from today through that model, you get 7% less plastic in the sea. So what, what sort of policy development have you guys been working on at Common Seas to say to governments, okay, what you're doing is going to amount to 7%. What sort of things do we need to be doing instead? Yeah, yeah well, it, the, a lot of it's around emphasis as far as I can see. So we need to do what the, what, the science, what the science says. We need to do everything. We need to do it as ambitiously as possible, and we need to do it immediately. And in fact, for every year that we delay that 
sort of total system change around plastic, another 80 million tonnes of plastic will get into the ocean by 2040. So every year we delay 80 million tonnes into the sea. So pretty powerful. So we need to do it all. And that means we need you know, upstream innovation to design out the stuff. And we need downstream innovation to stop the stuff that's being produced from getting into the environment, to the ocean, into our bodies. But again, it comes down to kind of how and where we put the emphasis on in the system. And um, at the moment, what we're seeing is quite a lot of emphasis on sort of downstream um, efforts to kind of capture plastic at the end of life. Um, and, you know, there's lots of good reasons to do that, because, of course, you've got a particularly in, you know, in poorer countries, you've got communities that are massively underserved by solid waste management that don't have household collection, but they're still getting this enormous throughput of single-use plastics coming into their lives. Uh, and that's, you know, massive, massive. You've, got, you've, got the, you've got businesses who are increasingly using um, single-use plastic. So bearing in mind that, you know, about 40% of plastic that is made goes into packaging. And that packaging makes up just under half of the waste so that we find in the environment, just crudely speaking. So communities that don't necessarily have the waste management infrastructure to capture the, the plastic are getting, are getting more and more plastic in their lives. So there's an obvious problem that we need to kind of address there. The issue, I suppose, that I have, our perspective at Common Seas, is that you can't just address this problem by at the end of the pipe. And there is a convenient um, narrative that says we can, because it essentially doesn't challenge us to rethink the systems of today that essentially are sell selling us all of these products in single-use packaging. So the companies that want to sell us stuff wrapped in plastic, food, crisps, coffees, beverages, all manner of other household consumables, you know, what we're saying is actually you need to be changing the delivery mechanism for those uh, products to us so that you can deliver the utility that is currently served by single-use plastic, but in a circular economy where plastic is not becoming waste and where we're seeing a lack of innovation, a lack of investment and a lack of, frankly, commitments by both governments and businesses is in saying we will be using less plastic and we will be reducing the amount of plastic that is used. And so that's kind of what we're pushing for. And in terms of, like, broadly speaking, like, the, the, the key policy asks, well, a lot of this comes down to, as it always does, is that kind of polluter pays principle, is how do you make sure that the economics of, of polluting don't add up? So you incentivize people to not put the material onto the market in the first place. So um, lots of the focus is around things, something called extended producer responsibility, whereby essentially what you can do is you can incentivize companies to... Uh, to think about to drive upstream innovation and to take single-use plastic out of their business model by um, having financial, uh, by having essentially a tax on products that are put on the market that are um, that are wrapped in single-use plastic, and so the fees associated with putting um, products on the market in plastic would then need to cover the whole sort of life cycle impact and management of that material. So if you're going to be, you need to be making it would mean that you can't just be selling products into a market with there's no waste management and it would and you can use kind of modular fees that essentially mean the the the, the more recyclable materials the more circular materials or it would have a lesser a lesser fee uh, and indeed reusable and reuse mm -hmm. systems of course would would be incentivized because they would not incur these kind of charges um so that's the kind of um some of the key policy asks is you know there's lots we can do today around sort of banning the 
the pointless, unnecessary stuff. And you know, we've seen this kind of wave of of, of sort of you know banning straws and balloon sticks and taxes on single use plastic bags. And that's all that's all good. It's good in the sense that it's it's quick. You can do it. Governments can do it fairly quickly. And there's good, you know, they're either unnecessary items that we can do without, or there are good solutions and um, alternative materials already available. Um, but it doesn't actually address the huge bulk of the problem, you know. And um, so it's a good one to engage the public. It's a really important place to start. You can announce it pretty quickly. But we need to go far, far, you know, much, much further in terms of thinking around that um, larger a uh, group of plastic items that are more challenging to just sort of design out and do away with and where we actually need to think about new business systems where you've got cons- you know um, reuse and refill models or sort of uh, service-based delivery models that are actually designing out the plastic at source. Sounds quite similar to the climate change situation in the sense that we know that we can't produce more fossil fuels and stay within the Paris Agreement yet more investment seems to be going that way. Um, fossil fuel companies still um, expanding, banks still lending to them. Um, and the other thing you just made me think about is this, this quote that I quite often use that I really like, which is, um, instead of trying to do things better, we need to do better things entirely. That we, we seem trapped within a certain paradigm and lack the imagination to step outside of it and think about why are we doing it this way? Could there be better ways of doing it fundamentally at those underlying assumptions that we just take for granted? rather than just staying within that one frame of reference and trying to like tweak it and make it more efficient. Like that whole thing that you were saying about like end mm. of pipe, that's, it's important, but unless, if you've got oil companies that are, and I read a, a report recently um, that said that the oil companies as a result of um, their perceived impacts on fuel production as a result of climate change are now pushing more and more money into plastic production and hoping to flood uh, Africa and the global south uh, with plastic in order to make up for the losses that they're going to assume they're going to have in um, the global north as, as a result of fuels. So mm. it's, it sounds like the yeah. plastic uh, challenge and the climate challenge, uh, if you follow it up high enough, sit with oil and gas companies. Yeah, there's lots of connections to be drawn. I mean, I think that analogy you've made is really interesting as well. I mean, certainly it reminds me a lot of when I used to work more on the kind of the climate space and carbon capture and storage was being heralded as this kind of solution. It's kind of like, Mm. don't worry, we can kind of continue the status quo, but what we're going to do is we're just going to hoover it up and put it in an aquifer, an old oil oil well. And it's, it's great because, you know, we can essentially life continues as usual and the business model doesn't have to change. We just sort of suck it up at the end of the pipe. And, you know, it, similarly, there's a lot of emphasis now on saying, don't worry, we just collect and recycle the stuff when actually it's not technically, practically f- feasible. And because you've got such an enormous growth of the projected amount of plastic that we're going to be using, that even if you up recycling, mean, 15% of, recy- of plastic has been recycled at the moment. And even if you up that, even if you double it, because there's so much more materials mm-hmm. going through the system, the leakage is still increasing into the environment. So again, like I'm not saying carbon capture and storage doesn't have a role to play in climate mitigation. I'm not saying recycling and waste management doesn't have a significant role to play in plastic mitigation. What I'm saying is it's about it's about narrative, isn't it? And we can't we can't it can't be the silver bullet and it can't be the reason why we don't challenge the system and the model that is saying we just need to use more and more of this material. And the second thing that you say, which is of course is the, the risk is that it becomes the driver of this, is that you're right. I mean like 
plastic, most plastic is made from oil and gas. And, you know, as um, those companies are getting pressure to not be putting in our cars and not be fueling our lives in that way, more and more of it is getting cracked and, and put into to plastic production. And, and the CO2 um, impacts of plastic across its life cycle from, from production all the way to end of life are significant and are growing. In fact, I think each kilogram of plastic packaging created is two kilograms of carbon dioxide. Um, so, you know, you know, there's a significant footprint there. And actually, the end of life part is, is a really significant part of that footprint because you still have, you know, either informal burning or, or, or sort of incineration um, as an end of life for quite a lot of plastic in the world. And in fact, I think in 20, 2019, 2020, the incineration of plastics alone was responsible for like 850 million tonnes of of CO2 equivalent, um, wow. which is like, um, I think it's just under 200, 200 coal-fired power stations equivalent. And, you know, that's set to grow. I think by 2030, we're talking another, add another 100 coal-fired power stations to that bill. So, the, again, as we're looking into wow. our crystal ball going forward, the, the, the sort of the, the life cycle um, plastic-related emissions are set to, to double from today by 2040, which would mean that actually plastics is accounting for the best part of 20% of the remaining plastic budget that is permissible under a 1.5 degree world. So there's, there's, there is a conflict there emerging because, as petrochemical companies are looking for new markets for, for their products. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so there's a sort of, sort of sense that... Um, Supply can feed demand a little bit on this, which is, I think, so, quite risky. That's a good um, outline of the, the scale of the issue and where it stems from. So let's just sit with that for a little bit. Pumping even more plastic into uh, production than ever before, set to grow. It's not only um, increasing uh, the amount of pollution, it's also increasing the amount of CO2 emissions. But you also mentioned earlier about human health. So what's the relationship between plastics and human health? I mean, if we're going to be swimming in this stuff for quite some time, we're going to be filling the oceans with it, and oil and gas companies are soon going to be trying to pour it all over the global south as well. Um, what sort of in, impact is that going to have on, on us as, as humans and our, and our bodies? Yeah, yeah well, it's, um, it's a really interesting emerging area of science. And actually, you know, at the moment, um, common seas are... Um, we have a, a campaign in place calling on the, the government to ring fence uh, a £15 million portion of our UK R&D budget for a plastic health research fund. And that's um, a, um, a, a call that is backed by um, over 80 preeminent scientists and the heads of all the um, major UK environmental NGOs. And, and the reason is because, um, as you say, like as our, we are the most um, exposed species to, to to plastic actually you know we use it it, it pervades every part of our, our life um and of course and it pervades pervades every part of our natural world now from the deepest sea trench to the top of mount everest you know we're finding we're finding plastic particles um and because we're surrounded by the stuff and because the things that we eat are surrounded by the stuff there's lots of routes now for plastic to be um to get into our bodies in fact um we're we're probably ingesting about 50,000 pieces of 
plastic every so eating about 50,000 pieces of plastic a year and probably breathing in another 25,000 or something like that and the and it, so it, it's in our it's in our food um so that gets into our food from like the materials that we wrap our food with it gets into our food from things that we eat being exposed to plastic so so fish um mollusks those kind of things but it's also getting into our food now we've got evidence of um micro and nano size i think more on the nano scale nano size bits of plastic getting into the edible parts of um lettuce and wheat and a couple of other crops through root uptake. so actually there's new pathways emerging into our bodies Sorry. which is pretty bonkers root uptake well the soil yeah as in microplastics in our soil are uh, being absorbed into edible parts of food <sighs> by the plants and so that's another route of plastic into our into our bodies through through ingestion so and you know, we're only now beginning to scratch the surface of the you know of the sort of the nano size part of the scale like all those figures i gave before about particular exposure mm-hmm. that's kind of microplastic but when you start looking at nano these are the more more prolific and more sort of insidious potentially so that's the first thing to say around the health because we're exposed to it a lot of it and remembering that growth curve of plastics that we're mm-hmm. that journey we're on is that you know we're exposed to that much today imagine what are we exposed to in a world where we've increased plastic production by 40 percent mm-hmm. in the next decade for example um so we also know from um, animal studies that if you expose animals to sort of fairly high levels of microplastic then you'll find in their liver in their bile in their cerebrospinal fluid um we also know from um other kind of studies that you know people who have silicon implants or um, hip replacements and knee replacements that plastics that are shed from there can migrate around the body so i think um about 15 percent of hip replacement um uh people who've had hip replacements will have um plastic particles in the liver and the spleen um so and in fact i mean you know one of the most uh, i don't know interesting and uh, surreal moments of my kind of career was traveling over to to amsterdam where we've got we're working with um researchers over there to be uh, amongst the first people in the world to have my blood tested for for plastic um and 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 to be one of the first people to have to find high production polymers in, in my blood so so going back to the kind of the kind of the health mm. picture um essentially there's there's kind of three main concerns right there's the there's the, the particles themselves that I've just been talking around because we know that these like these bits of plastic these these um, these tiny particles that are getting into our bodies we know that like they're they're, they're similar to air pollution particles they're hard for the body to break down in fact the, the bits of plastic are like bacterium sized as well so essentially they, they can trigger an immune response but your kind of immune system just keeps on hitting them and they're persistent particles and the and persistent particles in the body are associated with chronic inflammation oxidative stress and that is the prelude to, to well all kinds of chronic diseases diabetes cardi- cardiovascular respiratory diseases um so you know and and things like uh, preeclampsia stillbirth you know this is all studies from air pollution but there's lots and lots of evidence now that's showing that microplastics are can act quite similarly they, they look quite similar to, to air pollution in many ways so there's the particle bit 
And then there's the fact that plastic isn't just this kind of inert thing that just sits there. There are over 12,000 different chemicals that we put into to plastic. You know, it's the stuff that gives it all this wonderful properties that, that we, we love about it. But over 600 of those are known to be like, hazardous to human health. And there are hundreds of more that just aren't tested. It's, you get this classic thing where you get the legislation can't keep up and, and you get sort of just chemical switching, you know. So we've all heard about the bisphenol A's and the, mm. the phthalates and the sort of brominated flame retardants and stuff. But, there is, but you know, there are millions, well, not millions, thousands, tens of thousands of, of more chemicals that, that are used. Um, and we know that those chemicals in that kind of warm, humid environment of the body are released a lot faster than they are, say, in seawater. Um, there's this really interesting story, um, well, it's a, a study, but it came out kind of accidentally in a lab where there was um, a worker who was cleaning the floor of the, the mice cages that they have, the mice that were being used for the studies. And the, the chemical that he was using was degrading some of the plastics. And they, and they noticed that um, it was vaguely linked to sort of chromosomal abnormalities within the mice when um, a mice is mm. in the womb, it's already making it's the eggs. It's already building, mm-hmm. making the, the female mice already making the eggs. The, the, the chemical will have a wow. most generational effect. So there's the chemical piece. And then finally, there's the, um, the potential for these tiny bits of plastic, these micro nano sized bits of plastic to act as a vector for disease. So what happens is you get like a biofilm that forms around a plastic, a corona of, of viruses and pathogens, that, and the, the, the plastic can then be used as a dispersal agent, either into the environment, and we're looking at that in the context of riverine distribution of, of pathogens from, um, from single-use um, nappies, but also in, into the body. And we know, for example, that COVID can remain um, on plastic surfaces for longer than it can, like steel and cardboard, and certainly a lot longer than it can in the air without without plastic as a as a sort of little carrier, mm. a little vehicle to, to, to get it out of the world. So that's the kind of picture on plastic exposure. We've got a kind of constellation of bits of evidence that says we should really care about this. This is a, this is a problem. But what we're lacking at the moment is the sort of long, definitive, longer-term studies that under, to understand the effects on our body and like who's most exposed and, how we, and what are the plastics that are causing the problem and how we can mitigate it. Um, so at the moment, Common Seas, I don't think this has been announced. So this is very, this is, you get a scoop. At the moment, we're investing in quite a, a range of, of, of new um, research programs um, that will be looking at um, whether a diet of food sort of wrapped in, in plastic um, is actually causing a measurable uptake into our body. So we'll be um, sort of feeding people plastics not in an ethical way and then measuring their blood um, for plastics and measuring their urines, look at like excretion levels. Um, and then we're also going to be looking at the presence of plastics in um, human tissues and human organs. So there's there's one thing to say, okay, it's getting into our bodies, but what we want to start building a narrative is, is it accumulating? What happens? Can the body get rid of it? Was it sort of just sit there causing that kind of immunological response? Um, and so what we're going to be doing is looking between a healthy and diseased gut and brain tissues um, and comparing for the presence of, of, of plastic particles and actually using some really sort of whizzy new um, uh, 
sort of electron microscopy style visual techniques that will allow us to be able to see bits of plastic particle in situ mm. and to understand what the body is doing around that because what you expect to see and what you see in in other examples for example going back to the hip replacement is that you actually can see the aggregation of white blood cells or you can see the, the bodily tissues having an immune response around around these things so that was a very long waffly answer but hopefully gives you a kind of flavor of what the picture is on health and why we should be why we should be concerned and why we're really calling for you know the it be beholden on governments and businesses for for them to 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 look into this because essentially there's absolutely no correlation between the amount of money being spent into making new plastics and you know the amount of money being spent on research is really nascent and it's very 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 underfunded talking about funding different um research projects or solutions and things like that you mentioned earlier about um the upstream innovation if we're not using plastics what are we using and to what extent does the whole circular economy or innovative materials or um uh, yeah different uh, approaches either through you mentioned refills like that but what about alternatives to plastic i had heard about some startups that have been um creating alternatives to plastic through biodegradable materials instead is that something that can scale mm. is that something like um fission which is always you know 20 30 years away or what's the picture look like at the moment yeah i mean there may be a future where we design a plastic that with end of life in mind a new plastic um that doesn't have any of these terrible properties but the reason I don't focus a lot of my time on material switching at the moment is because I see it causing more problems than causing benefits. And the, the one that you sort of brought out, which I think is a, is a really useful example, is around biodegradable um, plastics. Because it's been really heralded and, as, as a solution. And, you know, it's proliferated this ridiculous array of different um, um, plastics that, you know, claim to have sort of uh, regenerative effects and to be fully biodegradable. The first thing to say is that a lot of these claims are spurious or, or and a lot of these materials require very specific end-of-life conditions in order to be able to break down in the way that they, they say on the side of the packet, as it were. Um, and that doesn't include the ambient temperature of the ocean, for example. It usually and often requires a sort of anaerobic digester, that kind of thing. And the second point is that you can't just put new materials into a system that is not designed to deal with them. And so actually what you're finding is you're getting businesses that are trying to do the right thing, creating, um, bringing in biodegradable materials, but there isn't the sort of the, the, the system to accept those materials within the waste management. So for, you, know, you see a lot of um, companies that are using kind of moves to vegware, but they don't necessarily the end of life of that vegware is it gets put in a recycling box or someone will get and, and actually what we're seeing quite a lot is um contamination of of waste streams with biodegradable materials and equally even if people put it in the in a food waste bin then often it causes problems because the you know we, we're not able to detect the difference between a biodegradable and a plastic so it gets pulled out as a contaminant so like the risk is that these biodegradable materials actually end up with more plastic and more waste being incinerated or buried because it contaminates a recycling stream. And it actually just confuses the hell out of people because people are trying to do the right thing, 
but actually uh, biomaterials today. I mean, the, the, the classic one was the, the sort of oxo-degradable plastic that was um, uh, promoted for quite some time, although now um, it being, it's being banned. Um, but that just sort of breaks down into tiny microplastics. So you're just accelerating the, the degradation into, into microplastics. Um, and, you know, there's obviously lots of new... Um, materials around sort of seaweed based and and we've been making things out of kind of coconut husk and various other bits and pieces so i'm not saying there isn't um a, a really important innovation space for around around new materials but again it's about making sure that the whole system is changing to accommodate new materials and um and also that we're kind of we're keeping to the principles of circular economy where we're trying to keep materials in use through like with like minimum amounts of energy and processing and resources need to recover it uh, and not just sort of um finding a new linear economy that's based on a kind of um biodegradable end of life so i think again it's about thinking about where do we need those applications and where do we need to get them right and thinking about you know the let's design out the stuff we don't need and then look at that bunch of materials that are left and think about where, the, where are the new material applications. And it may be that there's some stuff that, you know, some of those multi-laminate flexibles will be just really hard for us to design away and have a very high chance of being leaked into the environment. And that's where we need to start thinking about some new materials and we need to make sure that waste management systems are ready to recover them in that case. Wow. So um, what are you guys going to be focusing on in, in 2022? Wow, there's a question. It's, uh, I should be able to really give you super crisp, definitive answer because we've just been sort of finalising all of our our budgets and and, and plans. Well, um, so I mean, one of the things that we're going to be focusing on is this call for the UK government to allocate 15 million towards plastic and health. That's um, as a key campaign. It's also one that people can support us in. We have a petition on change.org that we're trying to get signatures that we're going to take to number 10 as part of our ongoing work there. And we'll have sort of a few uh, exciting science announcements and campaigns for people to get involved in next year based on our um in, uh, some, a couple of new papers that are going to be coming out of our health research. In fact, probably three, two or three pu- major publications next year on plastics and health. Um, we're also um, going to be stepping up our our work to support governments to sort of deal with this complexity, particularly um, thinking about lower income um, countries. We've um, we've done quite a lot of work. We've spoken to around 25, 26 different sort of low middle income country governments and what we sort of find is like a big acknowledgement of the problem but often a lack of data technical capacity and resources to create these kind of holistic um, national strategies that um, consider the life cycle of plastics in fact about 70 percent of the most polluting country don't have a holistic national strategy on plastic bags or even anything close to it and so we're going to be um, um working to support countries to develop a baseline to understand the the likely projected um, characteristics of the plastic pollution in their jurisdiction and to develop um, evidence-based policy responses and we're going to be doing that as the world kind of builds up to um, UNEA, the UN conference in March next year, where we hope that there's going to be a mandate for a global treaty on plastics. And a key part of that is making sure that uh, at a national level, countries and national and corporate level, we can actually start having the checks and balances, so consistent monitoring and reporting tools for governments on on plastic to make sure that we can aggregate country efforts to understand how we're meeting a, a new 
hopefully international target for driving down plastic waste and pollution. So that's another key thing. The other thing is that we've been working um, in our uh, our sort of place-based projects. We've got teams in East Java. We've got teams in the Maldives. We've got teams in the Cyclades in Greece. And what they've been doing is really innovating around okay, what are the systems that actually can enable a policy? So it's all very well for a government to say, we're going to ban the stuff, but we've seen loads and loads of these bans. In fact, Bangladesh, I think, you know, first country to ban a bag, I think, and, you know, being pulled through the high court because of implementation is so hard. And so actually you need to have the, the, you need to have scalable business systems. You need to have the new materials. You need to have the circular systems ready um, so that actually you can be effective in driving down policy because essentially consumers can still get what they want and the wheels of the economy can still turn, but without the harm. And so what we've been focusing on is, um, is actually demonstrating some of those solutions in different contrasting geographies. We've got very different characteristics of the problem, the solid waste management, the sort of use and disposal of plastics. And now we're consolidating all of that into tools that will allow them to scale. And that includes, for example, a sort of ESG social reporting tool for, for hospitality businesses where they can um, get a baseline on their on their plastics. They can create a sort of um, uh, a, a plan as the, and, and targets for how they're going to reduce. And there's a whole kind of set of like learning materials, mentoring, coaching that will allow them to, to uh, adapt effective solutions for their for their business. So we've got some exciting things on that front as well. I suppose the 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 other piece of that which we've not really talked about is the educational side of what Common Seas does. And um, and we've we this year we've um, we started by creating the the biggest um, suite of e uh, educational materials aligned to the UK curriculum mm. on plastics and a circular economy, all free, downloadable from our website. Please go and use them. Um, they've been used about, um, I think, downloaded about 50,000 times so far. Um, and, and now we've turned our attention to how do we um, sort of set up schools to be these places where young people can really build confidence in and leadership skills around solving the problem of plastic so that they're motivated and have the kind of moral courage to then take it on in their communities and in their lives, really recognising this is a multi-generational problem now. We need to start preparing the next generation. So we, um, this year we started a really excited, exciting partnership with um, an organisation called Kids Against Plastic that were founded by these amazing um, Amy and Ella Meek who uh, you started their journey picking up waste on the beach, 10-year-old, ten and they are you know, some of the most articulate, incredible ambassadors for our oceans that you will find. And we, we've been working together to make sure that we've really embedded youth voice and youth leadership in a program that prepares young people to actually kind of do what we're asking governments and businesses to do, which is look at your school, audit your plastic, make a plan, think about some solution, build your team, engage your community, and actually go and deliver some campaigns that will reduce plastic waste. And we tested it. We launched in um, Nottinghamshire, in September, we've had over 200 schools signed up so far, and we, we want to use that as a blueprint for UK-wide scale, bearing in mind that the government, Damien Hines, I think in 2019, said that they called on all schools in the UK to be plastic waste free by 2022. And we've just had um, a panel event with a number of Tory MPs um, and peers saying that, yeah, the government needs to be mm. sticking to this. Um, and so they've got a year and um, I've done very little to support schools so far. So I think what we're trying to say is we've got part of that solution. And, and, and next year, we're really excited to be growing that um, UK wide. And again, that's something that we fully encourage everyone to, to check out on our website and to go to the um, uh, um, 
yeah, look at plastic clever, plastic clever schools and um, get involved in Brilliant. that. Okay, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just want to say, first of all, thank you for everything that you and Common Seas are doing and for highlighting these issues and talking about just the scale of it and all the intricacies. And I really appreciate the way that you'll be you're able to contextualise it within systems and a circular way of thinking. And it's not just about end of pipe, but it's about this entire systemic issue. So, yeah, thank you. As always, thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe as this really helps other people find us and we love hearing what you have to say too. Remember, as scary as many of these topics are, the future hasn't happened yet and we do still get to choose the best paths to take. So stay tuned, keep sharing and keep believing. Positive tipping points are coming. We just need to keep on finding new paths to reach them. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.